Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Can I welcome you, please, to this policy pitch event in this wonderful forum, the State Library of Victoria. I'd like to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. My name's Paul Austin. I'm the editor at the Grattan Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage tonight by five of the best policy brains in the business. To my immediate left is Grattan's Budget Policy Fellow, Brendan Coates, who oversaw the State Orange Book, which we are discussing and dissecting tonight. To Brendan's left is Hal Swerison, Grattan's Health Fellow. Next to Hal is our Energy Fellow, Guy Dundas, and our School Education Fellow, Julie Sonneman, and finally, Grattan Institute's Transport and Cities Fellow, Hugh Petruni. Would you please welcome, welcome the panel? So before we start, let me just uh, outline the structure of this evening. The panel and I will discuss and debate some of the issues for about 30 or 40 minutes. And we want to leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. We've already received, as you may know, a clutch of good questions that some of you sent when you registered for this evening's event. And I hope to put some of them to the panel but we certainly encourage live questions from the floor. So please be ready to put your hand up when that time arrives. Uh, so we've got a lot to discuss. Let's get to it. It is, ladies and gentlemen, election season in Australia. In case you haven't noticed, we go to the polls in less than two weeks. The New South Wales election will follow very quickly in March. And at the moment, the best guess is that the federal election will follow soon after, probably in May. It's a festival of democracy. And to mark the occasion, we at Grattan Institute have produced this, something we've called the State Orange Book 2018. Basically, it's a scorecard that rates the performance of each state and territory across a range of policy areas, not only but including housing, hospitals, energy, schools, transport and cities. Not just an assessment of the performance of our state governments, but also recommendations on how they can service better. Brendan, you were the coordinator of this project, so let me start with you. What exactly is the Orange Book? What's its purpose? Well, Paul, the Orange Book takes its inspiration from the incoming government briefs that the public service does um, around an election. So there's typically a red book and a blue book. Um, and they're essentially... Who gets red, who gets blue? Well, you know, I've had conflicting stories. So if there's anyone in the audience who is a current public servant that would like to clear the record, I'd be very happy to take that in the comments. But at the moment, I understand that the red book would be for Labor and the blue book would be for the coalition. Correct. 
But I have heard that it has been different at different points in time. And in fact, the Commonwealth ones aren't even red and blue these days. <laughs> I think they may be electronic, Brendan, but go on. Yes. So um, we digress. Um, look, the, basically what the public service did is they took the election commitments of each side of politics and they gave their two cents about how those could be implemented um, and also some of the other big policy priorities that they think that the incoming government should look at. And these were um, customised for both the returned government, if that happened to be the case, so in this case if the Andrews government is returned in Victoria, or whether Matthew Guy wins the election and therefore there is a new set of ministers with a new set of policy priorities. And so these books would exist and there was a time when they were in fact red and blue and had covers to that effect. Um, would be delivered to the um, incoming ministers, uh, both the Premier and the ministers in each department. And um, essentially the book that didn't get up, the, um, so the, the, the side of politics that didn't win, that book would be pulped um, and or hidden, locked in a, deep, in a dark vault and never to be seen again, despite the odd FOI request to try to track them down. Whereas the orange book, of course, should be on every incoming minister's desk. Well, so that is where we are different to um, the public service. We're willing to call it as we see it uh, very publicly. That's our role. Um, so if we think an election commitment is a bad idea, you know, we're very happy to say that the um, election commitments that some of the state governments or states um, political parties have been making aren't good ideas. We're very, we will give our advice as to what that alternative should be and we're happy to say so publicly in the lead up to the election because we're trying to really set the agenda about what the election should be about. So what are the policies that would make the most difference to Australians and um, how governments could go about implementing them. Okay, so I'm going to get very specific very soon but first Brendan can I ask you a big broad question. What's, what's your overall impression of the quality of state governments having been through this exercise? So one of the things that we did this time around is we did a state scorecard where we essentially ranked the different states based on the kind of things that really matter. So, you know, how well they're doing in their health system, how healthy their populations are, how efficient their tax systems are. And, you know, what came across was the variation. Some states do well at some things and not so well at others, mm. but no one's getting straight A's and no one's getting straight D's. And so there's something that each state can learn from each other because the kind, what we're seeing is the kind of policy choices that states are making, whether it's the choices they've made recently or choices that were made 25 years ago, matter a lot to the kind of, um, to the outcomes that we're trying to measure today. Hal, let me bring you in here as I get a bit more specific. The Orange Book, I think, uh, suggests that Victoria is perhaps the best performing state when it comes to hospital care. Now, is that a fair representation and what might explain Victoria's good performance? Uh, so, yes, Paul, the, uh, the data says that, uh, that hospitals are doing well in Victoria on cost data and on, uh, on waiting time data. So mm -hmm. what we did was we looked at... Um, uh, three indicators for how well the health system's going. One was avoidable mortality, which is a bit like how healthy is your population altogether. Uh, the second was um, waiting lists and, um, and waiting times and uh, how well is your hospital system doing in terms of waiting times. And the third was how are you doing in terms of the cost per patient. And Victoria does well on waiting times and the cost per patient. Um, the reason that it probably does that is because one of the major ways that hospitals is fun are funded across the country is um, on something called activity-based funding, and 
That basically means that hospitals about 30 years ago moved from a big truckload of money showing up the front door um, at, the, uh, at the appropriate budget moment and money being shoveled out the door uh, into the hospital and then um, at the end of the year uh, an annual report being delivered back to government to say how the money was spent to a system where hospitals are now paid for the patients that they treat and those patients are standardised, if you like, that in order to deal with uh, the fact that some patients are much sicker than others, they're adjusted for the for the level of um, complexity. And uh, Victoria introduced that system quite a long time ago and has probably benefited as a result of having a much more rigorous funding system um, focused on the actual activity that hospitals do rather than simply bringing a truckload of money to the front door of the hospital at the beginning of the year and then um, getting your annual report back at the end of the year. So Victoria was the first with the case mix funding. Have the others followed, Hal? Uh, a number of states have got uh, variants of case mix funding and there's now a national authority that, uh, that produces what's called the efficient price, which is an Orwellian term <laughs> that, uh, that basically means that uh, effectively when you average out across all of the hospital systems and you look at all of the different patient types that are coming in, you generate a, uh, an average price which hospitals should be able to do uh, the, um, the work for and then you adjust that depending on the complexity of the case that's coming in, the complexity of the patient that's coming in. And um, some states have adopted that in, in full and, uh, and others are still working their way towards that. And, uh, and is there a sort of direct correlation? Those who are further down that track have better results in terms of hospital it's, care? It's not a direct correlation, Paul, but, but the indications are that um, uh, having uh, funding systems which, uh, which drive performance uh, are, 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 are associated with better, uh, better efficiency. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is that states vary in terms of the, the geography that they've got and the histories that they've got and so on, and there are other factors which actually do, do impinge on um, what goes on. Hal, you mentioned avoidable mortality rates. What's an avoidable death? <laughs> and what do we see when we look at that measure? Well, avoidable deaths are, are uh, deaths which are essentially from illnesses which um, could have been prevented. Uh, so diabetes-related deaths, uh, some cancer-related deaths, etc., mm -hmm. are avoidable. Uh, is avoidable mortality, and so the the worse your outcomes are on avoidable mortality, the more those deaths could have been prevented by other by um, changes in the way that uh, you, for example, deal with uh, tobacco, alcohol. Um, uh, diet and so on. Right. And which states are doing better and which are doing worse on that pretty fundamental? Well, measure? well, there's a there's a huge variation, Paul, across the uh, across the the states in terms of um, avoidable mortality rates. And in a sense, what we're what we're keen to see is uh, that states adopt policies which start to introduce. Um, uh, preventive measures and so what we tend to do in Australia is we focus heavily on uh, on health uh, on, on treatment in hospitals mm -hmm. and we have much less effort uh, on community-based prevention programs to deal with these things in a systematic way so we're pretty keen to see um, uh, prevention programs being introduced uh, and and that's the 
I guess, a, a fundamental recommendation that we would see coming forward out of um, the Orange Book for ministers to think about. So the question is, do, do prevention and education programs work in health? Because I, I assume we're talking about a bit more than a, an ad on the TV and a, and a pamphlet <laughs> in the GP's waiting room. Uh, yes. Well, if you go back to the 50s and the 60s, there was an epidemic of heart disease and many of, many of you will know that one of the major reasons that there was was because about um, 50 or 60% of the population was smoking at the time. Sure. There's been a very significant decline in cardiovascular mortality over the last um, two generations and one of the major reasons that that's occurred is because smoking rates have dropped dramatically over that period of time. And um, so that's a good example of where you've got preventable mortality. The other huge area where we've had enormous impact has been on road um, trauma. Yes. Um, where we've put a, a, a huge effort into um, uh, improving cars, roads, drink driving, speeding, seat belts and so on. And that's seen the, um, the rate per capita of road mortality go down dramatically. And they're just two examples of where prevention programs make a huge difference. And at the moment, our probably our major uh, issues, and Grattan's had a go at some of this, uh, things like diet, and um, and uh, we've done a report on sugar tax, mm -hmm. um, and so reducing the, uh, the extent of free sugar in the diet, and that relates to obesity. The other big area where um, there are gains to be made is in alcohol, and there are still gains to be made in tobacco. Hal, you mentioned waiting times, which are a huge bugbear yes. of state governments and citizens as well. Um, what can be done? We're talking about waiting lists not just for hospital surgical procedures, but the so-called dental delay, which mm. is really huge in this country. What can be done? So just to pick up on dental delay for those of you who are um, who are concerned about uh, the you know the missing bit of the Australian healthcare system is is still dentistry mm -hmm. and, and oral health and while most um, services are, are um, the majority of is paid for by government in the case of oral health um, most of the costs of oral health dentistry are paid for by individuals and so if you're poor. Uh, then you end up not being able to afford that care and the waiting times for uh, dentistry um, often exceed six months um, and for a significant proportion of people exceed a year so that you can't get in to see a dentist through public dental services because there's no, there's no capability. In fact, public dental services can only probably provide services for about 20% of the people who, who are eligible for them. And uh, you're saying some people are waiting more than a year. Yes, some people are waiting, waiting for more than a year. I had a look. Some of you um, watch uh, the ABC um, health programs and you'll have seen recently the, the program on dental care where the three-year-old goes in mm -hmm. um, for dental care and has, um, I think it was six um, teeth removed under the general anaesthetic because of the sugar in the diet and that was through the public dental system. So there's an example of where prevention operates. For many people who are on low incomes, they can't get access to dental care because there aren't enough services. In terms of waiting times, obviously, uh, one of the things we think that should happen is the Commonwealth should consider taking over responsibility for dental care, at least for low-income people. Right. And for uh, hospitals where we have waiting times, which are often less, which are often around a month for elective surgery, uh, we think that um, the uh, the uh, approach of using funding systems along the lines of the Victorian funding system to drive performance. 
is a very good way of creating incentives for people to reduce the waiting times uh, that are there for particularly what's called elective surgery. Most, If any of you today are unfortunate enough to have a serious accident on the way home, you'll get into emergency straight away. Yep. There won't be a wait. Um, Victorian public hospitals are terrific in that respect. But if you need a knee replacement or a hip replacement in a uh, public hospital, you can often have a substantial waiting period. And one of the ways of dealing with that is to create funding incentives to ensure that you manage your hospitals effectively so that you get people in as quickly as possible. So, Hal, you're sitting next to our budget policy fellow, Brendan, and I'm sure that Brendan would like me to ask you this. <laughs> We're all in favour of reduced waiting lists, but does this require a lot more money? Are we talking about a lot more funding in the health system? Uh, well, there are there are obviously uh, funding constraints. In the 60s, uh, uh, health costs in Australia were about 4% of GDP. Now they're around 10% of GDP. So healthcare costs continue to grow. Essentially, you get um, a, a more expensive healthcare system in, in countries which are more affluent. Australia is a very affluent country, so we have uh, more healthcare than <coughs> some other countries have. Mm. The growth rates in healthcare generally exceed inflation as a rule. Um, this is essentially a choice that the community has as to what it wants to see funded or not funded. Um, the job of health uh, system, uh, the people who run health systems and people like us who provide advice is that that funding is as efficiently spent as possible for mm. the best possible outcomes. Mm. I'll come back to you later on, Hal, no doubt, but I want to uh, move on to Guy now. Guy is our energy policy fellow. Guy, it seems to me as though energy policy is a bit of a mess in Australia these days. Successive federal governments have been unable to come up with a coherent or a consistent policy regime. Am I right, Guy, that the feds have basically failed on energy and can the states save us? Look, I think that's a pretty fair summary, Paul. Thank you. And without giving everyone here the blow-by-blow, blow, uh, 10 years of energy policy is quite a painful experience to go through. Um, just recently, you'll probably recall um, the federal government uh, changed prime minister, changed en energy minister, and at that same time um, abandoned their policy to reduce emissions, which was formerly going to be part of a policy called the National Energy Guarantee. At the same time, you have the energy industry crying out for a stable fr platform, a stable policy framework in which they can make large investment decisions to deliver new supply. Mm. So we really think there's an opportunity for the states to step up and fill that policy vacuum. All right. So let's go through the, the so-called energy policy trifecta. Reliability, affordability, sustainability. What can the states do on reliability to ensure that when I flick the switch, the lights will come on? So in terms of reliability, what the federal government and the states are currently working on is the reliability limb of the National Energy Guarantee, right? which is an important signal for um, the retailers, so the, the, the companies that supply you with energy, to make sure they have enough firm, dispatchable generation that will be there on a hot summer afternoon where maybe the, the wind farms aren't operating and the sun's setting, mm -hmm. um, to make sure they have enough capacity to supply the system reliably at that time. So in terms of reliability, the states and the federal government are working constructively together. The vacuum is really around 
emissions. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, there are some issues around how people address the current high prices that consumers are paying. Let's go to prices first. Sure. Affordability. Uh, can you or the states reduce my power bill, please? So just as a context, uh, the, the way the energy system is run is a mix of federal and state legislation and some governments have some levers and some governments have other levers and some levers are shared. So there's a, if you like, no single person, Angus Taylor or your local energy minister can't really come along and address all of the issues in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot of work that needs to happen across the different elements of the, the power supply system. But uh, for the orange book, and I'd also say it's not a, it's not a trivial task, um, probably the core element is investment. As I, as I mentioned before, investors are looking for that stable framework in which to make investment. That's really important to bring new supply into the system and bring prices down. But having said that, there are some things that uh, state governments can do, and, and that was what we focused on as part of the orange book. Such as? So I'll focus firstly on uh, retail pricing. Yep. So, and uh, there's been a, a bunch of work done on this. So Grattan itself did a report and found that um, margins that your retailer is charging you as part of the, the process of sort of managing your electricity supply um, are higher than in other industries and higher in, than in the United Kingdom electricity industry, for example. So a lot higher. A lot higher. There's um, around that time, the Victorian government initiated a review into its own regulatory arrangements. That was called the Thwaites Review. It was led by former Deputy Premier John Thwaites. Mm -hmm. And more recently, the ACCC has done a review that looks at the whole eastern seaboard energy market and looked at retail issues as part of that. I'll focus maybe on the Victorian issues, given Please. we're in Melbourne. So the Thwaites Review recommended, I guess, a range of, a range of things, probably the two that are worth discussing. Um, one is about uh, helping consumers make comparisons. So certainly our research, the Thwaites Review research and the ACCC research all pretty consistently point to the finding that consumers are confused and they're having trouble getting on the best deal. Who's confused? I'm confused. <laughs> I'm confused. We're Go all on. confused. So there's no, no, no shame in that. Um, but certainly uh, the feeling is that there's an opportunity for policymakers to make it easier for consumers. So uh, an issue is that Retailers will come out and they'll 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 pitch you this discount. Oh, 25% off, 30% off, 40% off. Mm. But they all do it off a different basis. So actually, when when you look at the numbers, there's no clear relationship between what you actually end up paying and what this headline discount is. Right. It's uh, that's highly confusing, and and customers have started to disengage from this practice, and and I think they're rightly a bit cynical about it. So um, what the Victorian process is doing is actually banning the use of these, if you like, unanchored or, or sort of generic discounts. And what they're doing is they're going to provide tailored information to you on your bill about what the best offer for you is that your retailer can provide. And are you confident that that'll work? Because I quite like a discount guy. Well, as we said before, there were, um, the, the research shows that there's no clear relationship between the discount and what you actually end up paying. So 40% right. off a very high price is worse than 0% off a low price. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, now... Perhaps the big question in energy, sure. uh, emissions, sustainability, yep. cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the feds, am I right, have basically abandoned this, this field. What can the states do? So the federal government has abandoned uh, the field, if you like. Um, and the state governments are doing quite a lot, depending on what state you're in. So, for example, both the Queensland and Victorian governments have quite ambitious renewable energy targets. Right. Um, Victorian Labor has actually extended that target as part of this current election campaign to 50% renewables by 2030. That's the same as the Queensland target, 50% by 2030. 
but uh, New South Wales doesn't have a target. And what we're seeing is we've got these uncoordinated unilateral state-by-state targets. We need some leadership. We do. And the federal government's not providing it. So we feel there's an opportunity for the states to actually work together to provide a, a coordinated regime that would be would be more efficient and, and lower cost for everyone. Mm-hmm. So the way to think about it is, why would you put all your new renewable generation in Queensland and Victoria? There are obviously also good resources in New South Wales. If you're thinking about meeting in a nationwide uh, emissions reduction target, great resources in Western Australia. So, so what doing it state by state doesn't make sense. However, there's nothing stopping the states from getting together and effectively pooling their ambition and agreeing a common regime that would, uh, in the absence of federal government leadership, um, give that that framework, that target for reducing emissions uh, that the market is crying out for. Okay, so just a last one on renewables. Sure. There's a great big bus driving around Victoria at the moment, Guy. It's called the Daniel Andrews electioneering bus. And it's got a couple of big policy slogans on it. And one of them talks about more money for rooftop solar panels, more public money for rooftop solar panels. More solar, Guy. This has got to be a good thing, doesn't it? Uh, Well, more solar is right. Uh, So we're talking $1.2 billion, which would subsidise around 650,000 installations. So that's about a quarter of all Victorian households. So Dan Andrews wants to give us $1.2 billion. That's right. So so certainly um, that policy, if Victorian Labor is re-elected, will certainly deliver more solar. Um, and the pitch that was made, the, the, the argument for it is that we'll bring people's power pills down. Mm-hmm. And it will. But as a, uh, as a trained economist, I'm duty-bound to tell you that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Is that right? I'm sorry to pull out the cliche, but I have to say that, and this is very apt in this case. Um, All we're really doing is transferring money from your taxpayer pocket to your electricity consumer pocket. Right. So this is not a great uh, public policy framework. This is not a great use of public money. Uh, Obviously, taxes uh, have... uh, stop people from doing things we want them to do, like make pro- run profitable businesses and, and earn money and, and, and so on. So we don't want to be paying through our taxes for people to put solar on their roofs. And in a lot of cases, people would have done it anyway. In most cases, these systems would have paid for themselves. So as a general rule, subsidising people to do what they would have done anyway is not a great public policy. Okay, so I said that was the last one for you, but there's one more, sure. of course. There's one more. Uh, again, with particular... Uh, pertinency in here here in Victoria, gas exploration. So am I right, Guy, that at the moment gas exploration is basically banned in this state and, and is that the right policy? Uh, yes and no. So yes, that's, that's the policy and no, that's not the right policy. Why not? So just to set the context, um, what we've seen over the last couple of years is a, a large increase in gas prices. That's been driven by, uh, largely driven by the increase, the um, the ramp up of exports out of Queensland. Yes. And it's also been not helped in Victoria by the decline of our established gas fields out there in the Bass Strait. So that's not a great context in which to ban all exploration of new gas resources. And in, in this case, the Victorian state policy covers all the onshore area of Victoria. So obviously people have concerns about the implications of, of, of gas production and uh, exploration and production. That's legitimate, but a moratorium, which is what we have now, is a very blunt instrument to achieve that outcome. Um, We think a move towards a a case-by-case approvals process that looks at the merits and the risks of different projects is a a much more refined instrument and could unlock onshore gas reserves and bring that into a market that's really crying out for new gas. So we're seeing 
manufacturers that are facing really high gas prices and facing impacts from that. And obviously you at home will probably have a gas bill, it feeds into that. And it also feeds into your electricity bill because gas is an important fuel for electricity generation. Okay, thanks uh, Guy. So the states are important in energy policy, but the states are preeminent in schools policy. And I want to bring Julie in here. Uh, Julie, you make the point in the Orange Book about the importance of measuring a student's progress through school, not just a student's achievement at a point in time. So just explain for us that distinction and why it's so important. Sure. So um, often there's a lot of focus on achievement in reporting, but student progress measures growth from one point to the next. Um, and it's a better measure because it it better isolates out the contribution of a school to student learning from other factors such as the home influence on students, which right. is more caught up when you look at achievement results. Um, and so that gives us a bit, student progress gives us a better sense on, on which schools are truly adding value. And if you look at student progress between different states and territories, then that can give you a sense on which states might have better schools policies in place that are better supporting schools to add to student learning. Okay, so you've teased us a bit there. You've actually done the work and you have looked at student progress records over recent years across the states and territories of Australia. What are the differences and which state does best? So our recent report looks at um, student growth using NAPLAN data um, and looking at the same students and their progress through schools over time, um, which is it, what NAPLAN was actually set up for to do that type of longitudinal mm. analysis, but actually there hasn't been that much on it in terms of looking at growth rates. Um, and what we find is that there are differences between states and territories. Um, they're of the order of about 10 to 15% growth differences um, between between the best state and the worst state each year, which may not sound like a lot, but when you think about students are at school for 13 years, that actually adds up over time. Mm. Um, and what we find is that there are some surprising results. So um, the, you know, the big states like Victoria and New South Wales are at about doing about average, at about the national average in terms of student growth rates. Um, Queensland at primary school in reading actually comes out really strongly. They are consistently above the national average. Queensland. So that is surprising <laughs> because, <laughs> let me explain, am I not right in saying that 10 years ago the first NAPLAN results put Queensland at the bottom of the league table. You're now telling me that at, in primary school, in this measure of student progress, Queensland is at the top? That's right. And actually in 2008, I believe they had um, their car number plates had the tagline, the smart state. So it was a little bit humiliating to, to be coming out last. They, can, it, bring when a, the they first... can bring the number plates back now. <laughs> That's right. Um, so it so, is... So just just let's explore that a bit. What yep. what might be contributing to that, firstly, that big turnaround in Queensland and to the fact you're telling us that Queensland is doing better than the rest at primary school? What might explain that? So what the data is telling us is that over a consistent sort of six-year period, Queensland is coming out um, consistently having growth rates above the national average. So it's some whatever is driving those results has been in place since 2010 or before that, mm -hmm. um, it would take 
um, I mean, our results can't explain why these things are happening, but in terms of looking at some of the policies, you know, there's a couple of obvious differences in Queensland in terms of schools. So they have a much greater focus on internal assessment at secondary, um, which means that um, teachers need to calibrate how they assess student work much more closely than what is done in other states and territories. And whether or not um, that's a better model at secondary, it just means that there's a lot more conversations going on between teachers about student work and student learning in a really granular way. And that when you look to the evidence base, that is one of the key drivers of teacher Mm -hmm. quality and student outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one possibility. Another is that in Queensland, they had some really targeted strategies on literacy and numeracy where they just train teachers in some of the evidence-based pedagogies that work. Um, And so it's worth going back to look at some of those evaluations of those programs to see to see whether they've been replicated elsewhere and had similar success there too. Queensland is a role model in education. Let's have a look at it. Um, okay, that's the good news. Tell me the bad news. Which state or territory is the worst performing in Australia when we look at this measure of student progress? So. Our results take into account student background um, and it's actually the the territory with the highest um, socioeconomic profile, so the ACT, which um, would be surprising. So their raw achievement results are very high, but when you look at growth and you're comparing like for like schools, um, ACT consistently comes out below the national average at both primary and secondary in all the um, domain areas that we looked at. Yep, um, and that surprised me again. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's right, that's all the children of public servants out there. So mm-hmm. <laughs> surprising that there's not more action, but um, there has, you know, there, there's been a number of Auditor General's reports on schools in the ACT that have looked at and drawn attention to a couple of issues in schools around teacher quality and the way that teachers aren't looking to student performance results um, in the classroom. Um, so there's a, there's a couple of potential reasons, um, but we recommend much more investigation. Okay, so here's what we all really want to know. Tell me more about the performance of Victorian schools, primary and secondary. So Victoria, um, I can do a comparison between Victoria and New South Wales, which is always the ultimate question. Um, So, Do we beat them? (laughs) That's right. Well, so New South Wales, so on the whole, Victoria is national average at primary and secondary, Just which average. might come as a bit of a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, Victoria does do a lot better for, uh, for disadvantaged students, which to some degree may be less surprising because I think the State Department has had a very strong ethos of focusing on those that are more disadvantaged and having very targeted programs. Mm. I think Victoria is one of the first states to integrate needs-based funding into its funding formula. So there's, um, there's been a number of, of reasons why that might be the case. Um, New South Wales does a much better job though of stretching more advantaged students at the top and that's in government schools so it's not not just a case of private schools. Uh, much better than Victoria. Much better than Victoria. And stretching uh, the top students. That's right and that's also to some degree not as surprising because they have a much more um, focus, policy focus on separating out some of the best students into separate classes and they have more selective schools although the selective schools weren't a key part of our analysis. But at primary, they do have opportunity classes, which, you know, for gifted and talented students, and they really train teachers in how to target and tailor material to those students. So it could be that it could be reflecting simply that. 
Okay, so on the face of it, that sounds like a good thing, but, but to separate out the gifted and talented students has, does it not, ramifications for the rest. That's right, and I think it's really interesting that if you look at Victoria, which doesn't have a policy of separating out, you know, we do much better, arguably, at the, t mm. at the bottom end. Mm. So there are trade-offs and it's a, I think it's an ethical question as to how you handle that at a policy level. Mm. So the theme seems to emerge again that, that no one state is perfect, but each can learn from, from the others. More broadly, Julie, and if I may ask briefly as well, <laughs> what are some of the other big challenges facing our education system? So I think the key reform priorities for each state and territory, um, you know, we've made a number of recommendations um, and, the and the main recommendations are around teaching and learning. Um, so teaching is the biggest, the quality of the teacher and the teaching in the classroom has the biggest impact on student outcomes. How do we lift the quality of teaching? Sorry, what was that? How do we lift the quality of teaching, Julie? So um, there's many things that could be done. I think a key one is around workforce reform and looking at the work of teachers. And you know, when you look at other professions like nursing and um, doctors and the way that they're trained, there's a lot of on-the-job training and there's time for that and there's um, a hierarchy and you learn from the most experienced in their fields and the professions mm. and their specialisations. And that just isn't the case in teaching today. Um, a lot of professional development, you know, has either been off-site or it's been very open and collaborative in the school. But I think if you look at some of the high-performing school education systems, they have a really um, different way of working. They have a much more, much more leadership of the guts of teaching and the, at a not just within the school but across schools so they have leaders of, of subject areas really interrogating what's going on in the teaching of specific subjects um, looking at the content and the concepts and how how well they're taught and then training teachers on the job so that they have lower teaching workloads and more time to actually refine and get feedback on what they're doing and when you talk about these high performing education systems and nations what are some of the nations that we're talking about so in particular, if you look at some of the East Asian systems, so mm -hmm. Singapore and Shanghai um, have that have that particular way of working. Um, and you know, look, obviously there are different, a lot of cultural differences, and it's not just a case of picking up one another country's policy and and inserting it elsewhere. But I think in Australia, we've there's been a real drift away from the importance of subject expertise and what does expertise actually entail. Okay, and so you have a particular recommendation, which I found very interesting, that Australia should create a, a category called master teachers. So what's a master teacher and why would that be of benefit? So a master teacher has a core part of their role is to develop other teachers mm -hmm. and they are subject specific. So you would have a master teacher for maths or science and they work across schools and they're their job is to investigate and understand, you know, what are the key issues in teaching maths? How well are the current curriculum resources working? Um, what's the feedback from teachers? And really through a cascading system of mentoring, so they would, they would then lead some of the subject-specific professional development for teachers across schools. Um, and at the, at the moment, particularly in Victoria, we have a really devolved model of schooling. So mm -hmm. everything is at... Um, the, the individual school level and there's been a real loss of that's a system um, 
a system leadership of of the profession um, across schools. So that, mm. that that's the distinction. Mm. And my last one for you, Julie, at the moment is um, relates to early childhood development. Now, I know this is going to be the subject of considerable Grattan work in future, but you do make reference to the importance of early childhood development in the Orange Book. Why? Why is that important? So from our results, we see that you know, th there are some academics that will say, you know, um, look at where a child is at by the age of eight, and and you know they'll be, they will never recover. Mm. Um, but what our analysis is showing that um, is that the gaps are, are there when students reach school, but actually the gaps widen throughout school. So there's actually a lot more that schools could be doing, but it does show the importance of trying to really minimise that gap by the by the time that kids reach school. And there's a lot of evidence about the importance of early childhood. Um, there's a lot that could be done to lift the quality of early childhood, um, as well as to expand the access to disadvantaged students who we know that, or young children that we know uh, stand to benefit the most. Thanks, Julie. Now, Hugh, I've left you to last, deliberately. Um, because I found the uh, chapter in the Orange Book on Transport and Cities particularly interesting. Just before I ask you a question, Hugh, I want to ask for a show of hands from the audience, if I may, on congestion on the roads in Melbourne. Hands up, those of you who think your commute to work has got more congested and takes longer these days than it did about, say, five years ago. A few, and a few more, a few more. Uh, who thinks Melbourne generally is getting more congested? Okay, and keep your hands up if you're really annoyed about congestion on our roads. Okay, Hugh, that now. All, that all makes sense to me, Paul. You've actually done the numbers. You've done the work on congestion, not just in Melbourne, in Sydney and elsewhere, but particularly in Melbourne. Tell me what you've found about congestion on the roads in Melbourne. Yes, so congestion, so there are two, two parts that, to this answer. So there's both congestion, the state of congestion, and there's also the state of how long it takes people to travel to work and how how far they're travelling to get to work. And mm -hmm. in some way, they're obviously connected, but they're, um, they can also, and I think we should talk about them separately. So congestion, the work that we've done, so we did some work that used Google Maps data to, to think about the scale of the problem. And um, interestingly, we found that if you look at journeys to work across the city, there is this phenomenon where on average, the average commuter is actually not travelling that much, taking that much longer to travel at peak hour than they would travel in the middle of the night. So you're looking at increments of around two minutes to five minutes to travel to work in peak hour compared to how long it would take to travel that trip late at night. But obviously the story is different in different places. And so this is where we do, you know, we read this stuff in the media all the time and there are some routes, there are some trips, there are some journeys to work that are, have, have much, much longer time penalties. Um, so, uh, interestingly, not perhaps the way people might capture, be ca have their imagination captured. So, in the sense mm -hmm. that, um, on average, some of the worst routes you're looking at trips that take twice as long as they would take in the middle of the night, for example. 
not as you might, you know, pe- people might dream up, oh, it takes me four times, five times mm-hmm. as long. And they are very extreme, very occasional things that do happen, uh, tend to stick in people's minds, obviously, um, and that contributes to the sense that there is a big problem. And and we do not deny that in certain places, certain times a day, cities like Melbourne and Sydney, for example, do have a problem with congestion. Mm. Okay, but... but but generally you find that perhaps things aren't quite as bad as um, we might think. Uh, In fact, you say that Melbourne is coping rather well with this population boom that the city's going through. Uh, why do you why do you say that? Well, we, we say Melburnians are co- coping reasonably well because we, what we think. So when we look at the data that is that exists about how long people are taking to travel to work and how far they're travelling to work, um, and so the data there is not the data exists. It's it's good. It's not um, the sample sizes are not such that you would. You know, it's the end of the story, but you can corroborate it from several different angles. And we do not see huge blowouts in how long people are spending traveling to work. Mm. Um, certain points of the distribution, yes, there is sort of, there is a bit of movement, but it's not an across the board thing. It's certainly not what you would read in the media about, you know, um, shock horror kind of um, reporting, um, which, yeah, we all read all the time. Um, and in fact, even beyond the analysis that we've done, um, I saw only it was only a couple of weeks ago the Australian Automobile Association published some work that looked at um, that actually was great. They did this um, time series work, so that's part of the story that doesn't exist for travel times. Hard to time. miss that work. I saw it all over the front page for the Herald Sun. Yeah, and the the reporting literally was uh, traffic chaos. But the numbers make it very hard to support that. So they talked about, on average, over a five-year period, um, congestion, sorry, a a five-kilometre trip in Sydney becoming uh, nine seconds longer. Nine seconds. And in Melbourne, Melbourne, which was the worst of the lot, was 24 seconds. 24 seconds. Most of which was in the most recent years that they collected data for. So there's a lot of stability. And then there was this 24-second blowout. uh, and, and I'm not, and I, I, and I am actually not trying to trivialise it because I think that's an average, and in certain places, uh, certain times a day, it's worse and it's gotten worse. Sure. And we're in the midst of a lot of construction activity; public infrastructure is being built, and we see it, you know, around the corner. Um, mm-hmm. And that's disruptive, and that um, has made journey times for for a lot of people more unreliable and okay. longer. Okay, but you talk a lot in the Orange Book about individual adaptations to population growth what uh, tell me more about that what what do you mean by individuals adapting so by that we are referring to the fact that we do see quite a lot of stability in uh, journeys to work in terms of times and distance and we're seeing that in the face of very very rapid population growth that we've had in Melbourne in particular, but in cities all around the country, but we see this stability. And so um, what we did was we, we've had a look at, you know, what's going on underneath the surface and you do see a lot of adaptation, you know, people changing the mode of travel they take to get to work, people, you know, choosing to work from home. Um, we're in, in doing all of this, we're not sort of um, saying is it good or bad. We're not trying to say that everybody is okay um, because clearly people make decisions that, you know, perhaps they'd be better off if they could, uh, if they didn't make the decision to work from home, for example. But 
in general, overall, we do see this stability, and we see it. Oh, sorry, the other the other part of that is that we see it in the face of not having added a heap of new roads, not having added a heap of mm-hmm. new public transport infrastructure over the period that we looked at, and yet seeing the stability. So obviously, there's a lot coming, and um, but there's a lot that is not here yet. Okay, but you are upfront about the fact that there are uh, big problem areas with regard to congestion, and you have some recommendations for whoever forms the next government in Victoria. In particular, Hugh, you're calling for a congestion tax or charge in central Melbourne. What, why is that necessary and and how might that work? Yeah, so we're, we're calling for it because in and around central Melbourne is where we do see some of the worst congestion. Not to say it is the worst because you do see isolated parts of the network that do become congested congested at peak hour. But in terms of the one area that is consistently bad, it is uh, the central Melbourne CBD and sort of inner suburbs. So, and we also know that in areas around here, it is very, very expensive to add new capacity. So what we're proposing is that state governments need to be thinking very hard about how to design congestion charges um, as part of a suite of options. So we're not saying build no more new roads, we're not saying do no other policies, but this needs thinking about the way people pay to use roads right. could be a very effective way to bring down congestion. Okay, so I can feel some questions brewing from the audience, but I just want to return to Brendan briefly. Uh, Brendan, one of the big, I thought, recommendations of the Orange Book is an end to stamp duty. You want it abolished. Why? Well, that's right. So stamp duty is essentially the worst tax that state governments levy today. So this I is agree. stamp duty. Well, you might not agree after you hear my suggestion instead. Oh, um, but essentially stamp duties um, affect how much people move around the city, whether they can live in the kind of housing they would like to live in, whether you'll sell a house and buy a new one and pay stamp duty again in order to take a new job on the other side of the city. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to be the most economically costly taxes that we can think of. And also they're quite unfair because they tend to hit those that move more often. And you know, there's lots of reasons why you might want to tax some people more than others on the basis of income or wealth. But the fact that you want to move more often seems like a really strange one to choose to tax people more on. Okay, but stamp duty is one of the big revenue streams for state treasurers. So before I get too excited about this abolition, what do you want to change or replace it with? Well, I think this is where the uh, proposition becomes slightly less popular for a lot of people um, and for Uh. a lot of... A lot of uh, radio shock jocks, for example. So the what we want to do is we want to f- gradually phase out stamp duty and replace it with a broad-based land tax that would apply on the sim- in a similar way to council rates to essentially all property that is owned in the state of Victoria or the state of mm-hmm. New South Wales. Um, you're talking about rates in Melbourne of you know a, a level of about $7 per every $1,000 of land value. So for the average house, that might be somewhere like $1,000. That's obviously a lot of money. It's clearly a lot less than paying an average of $40,000 on stamp duty for the average house. But essentially the reason we want to do this is because it's a much more economically efficient tax. It doesn't affect incentives to work, save and invest. So people would more easily be able to move around the city. You wouldn't see so many people renovating their houses rather than just um, selling up and buying the one next door that might have the extra bedroom and living room that they need. And it would also probably be fairer because it would mean that you would be 
everyone would be paying, who's a homeowner, would be paying that tax in support of the revenues that are needed to fund the state. All right, so you talk about fairness. I think you also want to uh, include the family home within this tax regime, Brendan. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So council rates, which is something that we all, any homeowner will pay, and, you know, I'll declare my interest. I am a homeowner. This would apply to me too, as it would, I'm suggesting it applies to a lot of people in this room. Um, what it would mean is that everyone, including those that own, are living in their own house, would be paying this tax. The issue with the existing state land taxes is they only really apply to investment property, which is a real minority. And so you're not raising very much revenue if you're using that tax base to replace stamp duty. And therefore, you want to use a broad-based levy um, that's based off the council rates base, which includes the family home. Okay, enough from me. There's plenty to discuss and to debate. So now it's over to you, the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, now's your chance. Please raise your hand. And if you get the call, please wait for a microphone to get to you. And please be as brief as possible. We're looking for questions rather than statements, please. Right up the back of the room, Megan. And I'll work my way down, but gentlemen at the back. Um, I haven't uh, read the Orange Report yet, um, but from the um, conversations this evening, I'd like to ask for your comment on the suggestion that if you were, as a matter of policy, policy to encourage the introduction of electric vehicles for city transport, that this would have a, the dual benefit of reducing uh, emissions and also improving the health of the people who live and work in the city. Guy, I'm going to throw that one to you. Uh, I don't know that electric vehicles get a mention in the Orange Book, but they surely have a lot of attraction. Uh, no, we didn't discuss that directly in the State Orange Book. I think as a matter of, um, you know, just simple observation, I mean, yes, if you did have a fleet of electric vehicles uh, running around the city instead of internal combustion engines, it would certainly improve air quality in the city. And in fact, you see some cities in Europe that are banning or moving towards banning internal combustion engines in central areas of the city that are more sensitive to, to local air pollution. Um, but I guess in terms of, I mean, it's not clear to me exactly whether we're talking about a, a public transport policy or a taxi fleet. So, I mean, in terms of a, as a state government policy, uh, I'm not aware that that's sort of on the table, um, but uh, but certainly as an environmental policy, some municipalities and potentially state governments could look at that as an environmental measure. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions? Right down the... Uh, we'll just go back briefly, Megan, to the questioner, who's clearly not satisfied with Guy's response. I just asked for the implication of the health benefits too. As a as a win win situation, not just environmental emissions. Hal, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked at the uh, the um, the detail on uh, the impact that electric vehicles might have. the The reality is that um, emission standards in cars, which have impact on health, have been dramatically improved over the last um, uh, thirty or forty years. So mm. I suspect that the reality is, in terms of health benefits, that there would be marginal health benefits um, in in Australia uh, because of the already uh, dramatically reduced um, emission standards, uh, which have impacted on air quality. 
as opposed to um, CO2. Thanks, Hal. Now there was a question down the front here, Megan. Thank you. Um, my understanding is that Australians buy 1.1 million new vehicles a year for the last few years, and the best figures I can get is that we scrap between five and 600,000, which means that we're adding at least 500,000 vehicles a year. Put that over 10 years, that's five million more vehicles on the road. How does this tie in with the perception that congestion is minimally improve, uh, deteriorating? Hugh, do you, do you know whether those figures are roughly uh, correct? Uh, I don't know. They sound, they sound very large to me, but I, I don't know the exact answer. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, the, the, new, the new vehicles in the fleet or not, um, I think what we see is that congestion is what it is. Uh, it is a problem in some areas. It is, a problem, it is not such a problem in other areas. It's a problem in areas where it's very hard to add capacity. Um, and if, yeah, to the extent those numbers are true, we should be continuing to be worried about uh, the amount of capacity we, we have relative to the demand for using roads. And we should be looking to, at solutions that uh, can help us address that as directly as possible. So congestion charging would be one of those. We'll come down here shortly, but any questions around the middle of the audience? The woman in the middle here, please. Thank you. Hello. Um, I was interested in hearing more about um, whether state governments have any levers to manage population growth, particularly in cities and um, in the Victorian context, we've got a proposed minister for decentralisation. Um, so I was interested in thoughts for that, on that. Really hot button question, which I'm going to direct to Brendan. So, yes, there are a lot of levers that state governments can use. Now, Hughes talked about some of the transport infrastructure side and how that maybe you don't need that much extra transport infrastructure if you have, you know, more people because we can use the existing system more efficiently. But housing is an area where population growth is clearly having an impact. So whether you like it or not, if you add more demand to the, to the housing market, and if we don't allow enough supply to be built, then house prices will be higher and rents will be higher than they would be otherwise. And I think one of the issues we've had in our major cities, in particularly Sydney and Melbourne over the last decade or so, is it's still, despite the number of apartment buildings you're seeing going up around the city, it's still, we're not building that much more density of housing in the inner and middle ring suburbs of our cities. So Melbourne's doing a lot in the CBD. Um, we'll do a lot in Fisherman's Bend soon enough. We've done a quite a bit at Docklands. But once you head two, three kilometres out of the city centre, you get to pretty low density housing very quickly, two storey terraces and the like. So what we could do is we could make it a lot easier to build more housing, to subdivide, to build townhouses, medium density apartment buildings in those parts of the city, and that would make a big difference. And the idea that you can actually push a whole bunch of the people to the bush you know, is something that Australian governments have been trying for more than 100 years and hasn't really been all that successful. Our cities have become more urbanised than ever. And I don't think that would probably be a very effective strategy, A, because people probably won't go, and B, if you did get them to go, it's hard to know what they're going to do in the regions because the employment opportunities aren't the same there, which is why so many people come to the cities. Gentleman down the very front again, Megan. 
Thank you. Uh, we see a very strong um, fiscal imbalance between the Commonwealth and the states, and obviously that limits uh, the opportunities for the states to innovate. Um, the collapsing stamp duty revenue as of the last few weeks uh, is obviously a threat to the state governments, but does the panel favour GST on education and health? You can start this one, Brendan, but then I will ask about extending GST. Uh, so one of the things I didn't mention in the stamp duty discussion before was that it's also a very volatile tax. So stamp duty is particularly bad tax for state government revenues because it goes up and down with both property prices and the amount of transactions there are. And those two things tend to move together. So I think the Victorian and New South Wales governments do have a problem where, you know, they will find that their, their budget revenues are lower than they forecast. And that's going to be an issue. There are various ways that state governments can raise more money, and it's a lot more of them are actually within their control than I think they often realise. So Such as? Well, property taxation is the most obvious one where you can actually raise quite substantial amounts of money because, you know, the property tax base is enormous. So the housing Australian housing market's worth something close to $7 trillion. You know, it is worth a bit less than it was a year ago. Um, that's probably a good thing for housing affordability, but you can certainly raise a lot of money there. Um, Grattan's written before that you could look at extending the GST and broadening it out to other areas. That's not a report that I'll admit that I published to Grattan. Um, so I'm pretty sure that we did look at extending it into some of these other areas, but um, if our schools or our health policy experts would like to disagree with me, they're welcome. Hal, any case? <laughs> for extending the GST into... into uh, well, I think, I think really, I'm going to dodge the question, but um, the, I think the question really is about vertical fiscal imbalance and um, adequacy of state uh, revenues for meeting their uh, costs of delivery. And that is an issue which would, uh, should be addressed. Um, vertical fiscal imbalance um, tends to produce uh, all sorts of odd arrangements and um, whether the well, and the GST is essentially a state's tax, so that, as you know, so that the states would have to all agree about changing the rules for the states uh, for for the tax arrangements. So the question of whether it should be extended to health and education is a matter for the for the premiers and the prime minister to sort through. But vertical fiscal imbalance is certainly a distortion on what happens um, at the state level. So states are poor can't afford their services, have to wait for the Commonwealth to actually deliver the, the funding, which is, I think, the point of your question. What's the best mechanism for achieving that? One of Brendan's suggestions in terms of land tax is a pretty good one in terms of a, uh, a broad-based tax which doesn't fluctuate dramatically in terms of um, the arrangements um, that stamp duties do in, in terms of the housing market. Um, so my the, the short version is, yes, I think that vertical fiscal imbalance should be addressed. Thanks, Hal. More questions? The gentleman here, please. Uh, th thank you. A, a question to Guy. Um, Guy, in your benchmarking uh, amongst the various states, uh, and bearing in mind the spread of uh, renewable resources is perhaps pretty widespread and will become more widespread as distinct from localised, so, such as our current major power sources are in the Latrobe Valley, other states are similar, uh, with the disparate locations of the uh, wind farms and solar farms, did you benchmark how well the states are planning to upgrade their transmission networks to better connect 
these distributed sources of energy back to where the base the core demands are, because the core demands, say in Victoria, are pretty much focused around Melbourne and surrounding cities, but a lot of the sources of uh, renewable energy will be further afield where the networks are not strongly connected. Have you, did you do, look at that and compare the state's performance in upgrading their transmission networks? Key question, Guy, about this transformation in our energy system. So the short answer is uh, no, we didn't benchmark the states on that. Um, in terms of how those decisions are made, it's made through a, a national regulatory framework uh, and really the, the levers are held by a, a national body called the Australian Energy Regulator that really looks at whether transmission upgrades are required. But I think in, in terms of sort of addressing the context of your question, I think it's definitely fair to say it's, it's an issue. And in fact, that's a good reason to have that coordinated approach across the states that we were talking about. If we're trying to shove all the renewables into Victoria and Queensland, and their spare capacity in New South Wales, and then we're madly upgrading the grid in Victoria, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think, I mean, yes, it's an issue, and I think depending on who you talk to, different people will have a view about how likely those constraints are to bind, but certainly it's an issue, and I think certainly that's an argument for having a, 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 as broad a system for distributing that new generation as possible so that it can go where the resource is good and where there's the transmission connection. Thanks, Guy. There was a question here. Any other questions? There's a question here. Are there others? We'll go to this gentleman first. Another question to Guy. Um, Guy, you mentioned um, the state government, um, as part of the election campaign, are going to spend $1.2 billion on solar. Um, did your research indicate that this is the best use of the taxpayers' money, considering that it's going to squeeze some other sectors? Over uh, to you, Guy. Thanks, Paul. Uh, we didn't consider what you could do with $1.2 billion, and I think the short answer is a lot of things, and I'd be very happy to open it up to, uh, to Hal or to, to Julie if they have any, any great projects that could make our children better educated or give us better teeth and better health. Um, but as I said before, um, as a general rule, subsidising people to do something that's in their own private financial interest is a terrible use of taxpayers' money. So pretty much any use of $1.2 billion is going to be better than that solar policy. Thank you, Guy. Uh, gentleman on the far right here. Um, this is on decentralisation and, I guess, transport. Um, it's not something I can speak uh, speak much on, but is the concept of garden cities, as you can see around um, London in the home counties, something that's been given much consideration here? Does it have merit in other places? And could it be a way with high-speed rail to decentralise population and stimulate you know, declining um, economic centres such as the Latrobe Valley? Good question for yeah. you. So not just garden cities, but satellite cities and employment centres around the suburbs of the capital cities, Hugh? Yeah, I'll talk to the latter because I'm not quite clear on the definition of a garden city, but assuming that they are like a satellite city, um, I think there's a very strong case, and Brendan might even talk to the same point with regards to housing affordability, um, because, yeah, connecting the regions to the big cities is a, is a great opportunity in that to, to allow people to live somewhere that is affordable. Um, the question is how, how good are the links and how much does it cost to build them? Um, and I think 
the reality is that in a lot of a lot of cases it can cost a hell of a lot of money. Um, so the question is, is it worth it? Um, and I think it's a kind of case by case um, arrangement, and perhaps um, the best. The, be, the, the greatest opportunities sit in places where there is existing infrastructure that needs to be upgraded rather than brand new infrastructure that needs to be uh, built and land acquired to do that. So um, I don't know. I think that's yeah, a bit of a softly, softly answer. I think the answer is yes, but uh, subject to, you know, doing the analysis needed to know that, the you know, we're not overspending on something. Which, which, and, and sorry, that kind of goes to another point that we raise in the Orange Book, which is that evaluations are not always done before uh, mm. decisions are made, and that's a big problem. And evaluations are certainly not done after projects are built, so we don't learn from experience. So it's another, uh, another big problem. Ladies and gentlemen, we're just about out of time, but before I let the panel go, I'm going to ask a final question myself. It's, um, it's not a trick question, but it is to all of you, uh, perhaps in reverse order, starting with Hugh. Each of you's now been heavily involved in producing this important book, which is basically a survey of 10 years of policy performance of the state governments of Australia. So my question is, at the end of this process, how do you feel about Australia? Are we well governed and should we be glad to live here? Hugh. I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. I mean, I think by global standards, we have got brilliant governance and our job and the report we write, the reports we write are all about finding the problem. So, you know, you've come to the right people to get a negative message, but I think the reality is probably largely the opposite. Um, I would add to that, though, that there are certainly things that can be done and Guy has talked about no free lunch, but there are some things that are pretty inexpensive lunches like um, doing evaluations before you make big investments, doing evaluations of your evaluations to work out that what you spent has been spent well and learn from experience. So there are lots of little things, but I think broadly I'm giving you a very optimistic answer to that. Julie, you're an optimist. I am with a with a but. Um, I think um, in terms of school education, I think there's a lot that we have to be proud of in terms of the values that we see in our schooling system. Um, but I do think that there, you know, and just on that, I do think when you look at Australia's system compared to overseas, you know, we do value whole child development and it's not just a narrow focus on the academics. Um, but having said that, I do think perhaps with the pendulum has swung a little bit too far and I think there's a bit of a complacency there. Um, when you look to international standards, we have dropped not just in relative terms but in absolute terms in terms of our um, international standing in schooling. And I think if we keep going down that path, then, you know, we'll, we won't be competitive in the future. Interesting. Guy? Uh, Paul, it's it's hard to be an optimist after watching 10 years of energy policy debate in Australia. Yep. And yet I am. So I think you asked, you know, are we well governed? I mean, policymakers at both levels, the federal and state level of government, haven't covered themselves in glory uh, over the past 10 years. But despite all that, I feel like there's, there's reasons to be optimistic and, and really 
you know, we're trying to reduce emissions and keep electricity affordable and energy affordable. And I think Australia has amazing renewable resources. And I think the moment that the debate starts to to uh, to reflect that reality, and we have a more uh, optimistic take on that, and we start to gear our policy to, to debate towards taking that opportunity rather than this sort of culture wars debate about about how to get there and about um, you know prices and reliability and so on. Um, I think the moment we wrap our head around that, uh, we'll be able to unlock that opportunity. And I, and I think there's, I think on the back of that, there's every reason to be optimistic. Hal, this is not a bad place to get sick, is it? <laughs> no, it's not a bad place to get sick, but it depends a bit on who you are. Um, so uh, the uh, the Australia by on average has a has a good health system, but it um, is the case that people who are on low incomes uh, or who live in regional places do much worse than uh, most of you do who live in metropolitan cities and who are relatively affluent and relatively well educated. Uh, so um, it's very important that we do do things like the Orange Book where you can see the relative differences and the, I think the, 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 great, the takeaway message for me from the Orange Book is looking at the variation across the states and across the regions and across the, the different areas and what you can learn by, by doing that. So there are significant improvements which are possible in Australia. I won't go through them again. Uh, so it's a good place to live, but we can do better. Thanks, Hal. Brendan, sum up for us. Well, I think it's worth giving a plug to state governments and to the states, because I think it's often seen as the boring part of government in Australia. It's certainly the part of politics that's less covered, even though, as we've heard tonight, it's much more important for health and education than I think most things the Commonwealth would do. You know, Guy's got his work cut out on energy, but you know, we all wish him well on that over the course of the next <laughs> decade. Um, but I think what it shows is that all these things really matter to the lives of Australians. And as Hal said, the variations are really instructive of what would work of the fact that some states are doing things that really work and some states are not and they can learn from those that are and so it requires a combination of you know good planning good evidence-based research evaluating what we're doing um, and then also a sense of ambition both on behalf of state government bureaucrats the government the, our political leaders and us as a polity so i think when you're going to look at voting in the state elections like you should be think, have front of mind that that state governments really matter and they can your vote will really make a difference to the public policy outcomes that we can see. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Hal, Guy, Julie, Hugh. And just before we finish, ladies and gentlemen, can I please say a few very quick thank yous. I want to thank the staff of the State Library. The library is one of the things that makes this such a great city. And it's a real privilege for Grattan Institute to have such a close and enduring uh, partnership with the State Library of Victoria. I want to thank Megan French, who is Grattan Institute's events guru. It's Megan who made tonight happen. So thanks to her. And thank you to you, our audience, for your interest, your engagement, your questions. Please keep in touch with Grattan Institute through our website. Uh, you can read the Orange Book in full there, and indeed you can read 10 years of Grattan reports on our website. It's all for free. And keep a lookout for future policy pitch events here at the State Library. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking the stars of tonight's show, the Grattan panel.
Thank you and good night. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.